0: Our message tonight is entitled Rearing Godly Children in an Ungodly World. We live in an ungodly world, don't we? And it's not getting any better. It's only gonna get worse and worse. The term godly, if we break it down into its very simplest meaning, to be godly is to give God his rightful place in your life. If you're a godly person, that's what you do. You give God his rightful place in your life. You're godly. Our challenge as parents is to see our children grow up to give God His rightful place in their lives while they live in a world that refuses to do that. Now, the blessing is that God tells us how that can happen by His grace. And that's our challenge. Folks, we have to stop using the wickedness of this world as our excuse for seeing young people grow up in a Christian setting and then choosing the world instead of choosing Christ. We have to come to grips with what God says about the rearing of children. One of God's servants who is of great encouragement to me, and I trust is to you as well, is Noah. Now, Noah lived in a wicked time. As a matter of fact, when our Lord Jesus tells us about his own return, he tells us it will be as it was in the days of Noah. In other words, he said the world's gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse, even to the point where every imagination of a man's heart is wickedness continually. It's gonna get terrible. But isn't it great that when Noah stepped on the ark, his family got on with him? The whole rest of the world rejected his message, the message of righteousness. But by God's grace, his own family believed his message. And his wife and kids and three sons' wives, they got on the ark too. And I don't know what we can do to influence and impact this world. It's getting more and more difficult. Hearts are hard. Wickedness is prevailing. But I know this, by the grace of God, when I go on the ark, I want my kids to go with me. And again, by God's grace, that ought to be able to happen in your life and your family as well. If you are open to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to read to you from verse 10 through verse 12 as we get started. We find Moses leading the people of Israel toward the promised land. And in this chapter, and we'll spend some time in this chapter tonight, but in this chapter, Moses is saying to the parents, You need to be careful about your children. And he gives them a very sincere warning, beginning in verse 10. Notice what he said. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggetest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantedest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. What was Moses saying? He was saying, now listen, we're heading to the promised land, and when we get there, we are going to drive out the nations that are there. We're going to drive out the heathen. And when we do that, we are going to take over the cities that they've built, take over the houses they've built, take over the vineyards they've planted, take over the wells that they have digged. We're going to move into that land, and we're going to inherit tremendous prosperity. He said, when that happens, beware, because that's when you will tend to forget God. I think that warning is very applicable for us, because we live in a wonderful country that is extremely prosperous. But not one person in this room paid the price necessary to make America great. We have inherited prosperity. You might sit there and say, I don't think I'm very rich. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Compared to the rest of the world, every single one of us are incredibly rich. And the richness here in America has caused us to do the very thing that Moses warned those people about. Our nation is, yea, has forgotten God but it doesn't have to happen to your family let's bow together in prayer before we go any further our father we thank you for the privilege of being together tonight and we beg you for your continued ministry to our hearts for the sake of your name and your testimony but also for the sake of our families if you would minister to us tonight, we would be very, very grateful. And I pray that you'll give us wisdom in your word, and let us receive from you with great openness. We'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're going to spend some time here in Deuteronomy 6, not a long time, but I want to draw out from this passage some guidelines that Moses gave to the parents of his day to help them as they were facing getting to the promised land. Then we want to go to Proverbs 22.6, perhaps the most familiar verse in the Bible dealing with the rearing of children. And then we're going to also talk about some very practical things. See, you thought I was kidding about 9.30. We'll see how we do, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son. Now we'll stop there for a moment. Moses is talking to the adult generation of Israel. He's concerned about them and their children and their children's children. He says, now you are the parents, you are the adults, and you're on your way to the promised land. And he says, I have given to you the commandments and the laws and the statutes of God. He says, I have given them to you that ye might do them in the land, whether you go to possess it. I'm sure I don't have to tell you as if it's something new, that the first and most critical part of parenting is, is that you and I live the Word of God. Moses said, here are the commandments of God, do them. Do them. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. What he tells us in that verse and is expressed in other passages in the Scriptures is this, that when somebody gets saved, there is a radical change that takes place in their life. That's the only salvation the Bible talks about. A salvation that comes and radically and drastically changes you. And what Moses was saying, if we brought his challenge into New Testament context, would be this. Your children have the right to see in you the reality of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Your children have the right to see in you the reality of Christianity as it is taught in the Bible. Probably the worst thing that can ever be said with regard to us as parents would come from our children who might speak to somebody at church and say something like, You know, you see my parents in church, but you don't see my parents at home. You see my parents come to church and they carry their Bible and they sing the songs, pray the prayers, teach in a class, hold an office, whatever it might be. You see my mom and dad in this setting, but my mom and dad are different at home. The first people who will ever recognize hypocrisy in our lives will be our children. They see us at our best. They see us at our worst. They see us when things are going well and they see us in the pressured times. And our children know if the faith we profess is real. They know if we're just talking Christianity or if we're really living it. And if we are only talking it, and we in fact are hypocrites, and they know it, why should we expect them to grow up and serve the Christ whom we only profess to serve? Our children have to see in us Jesus Christ controlling our lives. He expands that thought in the second verse when he says, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God. He said, Mom and Dad, you need to fear God. And your children have to see in you the fear of the Lord. Did you know there's a whole lot of fear in the fear of God? I can remember thinking a time coming out of Bible college and teaching uh, this concept. The fear of the Lord is reverential trust. Not a bad term, but not adequate. Do a study of the term fear and fear of the Lord, and you know what? There's a whole lot of fear in the fear of the Lord. I like to liken it to a little boy who knows he's done wrong and dad is coming home. There's a lot of fear there. Doesn't mean he lives his life scared to death of his father, but when he's done wrong and dad's coming home, there's a lot of fear there. That's the fear of the Lord. Someone has said the fear of the Lord is this. Listen to it. The wholesome dread of displeasing God. It's wholesome, but it's a dread The wholesome dread of displeasing God. Now the question is, as our children watch us every day, do they recognize in us the wholesome dread of displeasing God? Do they see that you and I are not particularly concerned about what people think, but we are extremely concerned about what God thinks? And in fact, that's really all that matters. The challenge is expanded a little bit further in verses 4 and 5. Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Israel, love God with everything that you are. It is interesting that when the young lawyer comes to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament and says to him, what is the first commandment? What is the great commandment? That the Lord Jesus did not go to the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. He went right here. He said the first and great commandment of the Bible is this. Love God with everything that you are. With all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. Love God. That's the challenge. I want you to think with me of a negative challenge from 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15 says this to us, Love not the world. Now it's interesting that the term love, when this Deuteronomy passage is brought into the New Testament, And the term love that is found in 1 John 2.15, both come from the same Greek term, agape, which speaks of self-sacrifice. The challenge is this. You and I are to love God with a self-sacrificing love. The negative challenge is this. Don't love the world with a self-sacrificing love. Now you see, every one of us are alive, and we are, according to the Bible, supposed to live somewhere in the neighborhood of seventy to eighty years. That's all you get. Take those years and translate it into days; it becomes about twenty-five thousand five hundred days. That's about seventy years. That's all you get. You used one of those today. You used up one of those days. You did something with it. You invested your time. You invested your life. You did something with this time to to use it up. And every day you're using up this precious experience of life. Now as your children watch you using up your life, into what do they see you investing it? What are you doing with your life? Our Lord Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew that we are to not lay up for ourselves treasures here on earth. Where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. He said, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves do not break through or steal. He said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Know what he meant by that? He said, you let me see your treasure, and I'll tell you where your heart is. Let me see your treasure. I'll tell you where your heart is. Now, in case you don't know where you're laying up treasure, I suggest to you, you could ask your children, because they know. They know what is important to us. Oh, we can talk about what is important to us and what ought to be important to us, but I guarantee you our children watching us every day, they know what matters to us. They know what is important to us. They know what we are investing our life in. And they know whether or not we're laying up treasure here on earth and that that's all that matters. Or they know if we're laying up treasure in heaven because we live with eternity's values ever before us if our children see that we are really no different from the people who are unsaved, in other words, life for us is go out and work, put away money, buy the extra car, get set for retirement, spend, spend, spend. That's life for us. Then why should we expect them to live any differently? Moses said, parents, you better love God with everything that you are And your children need to see it if your hope is that when they get to that promised land, they will not forget God. Example is key number one to good parenting. Look with me, if you will, at verse 7. Verse 7 gives us another area of responsibility for the parent when it says, and thou shalt teach them diligently. The term them in this verse is the same as the term them in verse 1. It is a reference to the word of God, the commandments, the statutes, the laws. He says, parents, teach them, teach the word of God diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. He said, Mom and Dad, you have to teach your children the Word of God. The term teach diligently, which is one term in the original language, speaks of doing something like sharpening an arrow by a repetition. That's the idea of the term. And so the challenge is this, mom and dad, you have to teach your children in a repetitious way the Word of God. But he says the way you do it is not simply sit down and have a little 15-minute devotional every morning or every night. It is this, you talk about the Word of God with your children as you go with them through life. Or as he describes it here, when thou sittest in thine house... When thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. You know what? Parenting takes a whole lot of time. You know that? You are supposed to have the time to sit down with your children and walk by the way with them and be there when they are ready to lie down or be there when they are ready to rise up, which doesn't mean get up in the morning. It means to rise up and do something. Parents have to be there for their children. And somewhere along the line, we have swallowed hook, line, and sinker this statement. It is not the quantity of time. It is the quality of time. No, it isn't. It's both. It's both. And I know we live in a busy world, and we live at a hectic pace, but I also know this. Virtually everybody in this room would have to admit I find the time to do what I really want to do. Every one of us. What you want to do, you do. And there isn't a whole lot that gets in the way of it. And our problem is we too often lack the want to of being with our children. But you've got to be there. You've got to be there. A lady earlier this week said, I have no idea who it is. I wouldn't know her if I ran into her. She said something about, I won't be here tomorrow night. My son is playing some game or whatever it is. I think we ought to be in church all the time but I'll tell you what I have an advocate of parents be there with your kids support them in their activities be there man if they're playing an instrument be there if they're playing sports be there be there walk with them live with them talk with them spend time with them hear their burdens when they have a difficult time, you as a mom or dad, you have to be there to bring some spiritual perspective into their life. That's when you teach Christianity. You don't teach Christianity in the classroom. You teach Christianity in the day-to-day experiences of life. And you have to be there for your children in their up times and their down times to point them to Christ. I know what it's like in a Christian school situation. Many of you have your children in this school, and no doubt teams get big enough where some kids make it, some kids don't. And one day your boy comes home, he says, Dad, hey, I got cut from the team. Dad, I'm not going to make it. They cut me. I'm not, I'm not on the team anymore. The dad might say, that doesn't matter. That day, it is the most important thing in your child's life. And if you don't sit down in the midst of a time like that and give that boy spiritual perspective about what God might be doing in his life, I tell you, he may stumble and fall and have a difficult time for a whole long time. But you have to be there. Walk with him, talk with him, live with him, meet him in his time of need. That's what Moses was talking about. There is a third area that comes out of this passage. Verses 8 and 9 say this, And thou shalt bind them. The term them, again, a reference to the Word of God. Thou shalt bind them, bind the word of God, for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Verse 8, reference to the Jewish phylactery, the bands of leather with little portions of Scripture inserted. He goes on in verse 9 and says this, Thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Moses says, parents, listen, you have to be concerned in the broadest sense about what your children see with their eyes. In the more narrow sense of this particular text, he said, you have to put the word of God in front of your children. Now for the Jews, again, the phylacteries, leather band, leather band, I don't know that we have to do that. But he said, hey, take the word of God and put it on the gates and put it on the post. And I think most of you probably do that. If I went into your house, I'd probably see on your walls you've got plaques and you've got posters and you've got this. And and there in your house is the Word of God, and I hope it is, and it ought to be all over the place. So that when your child walks in, what's he see? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He turns over here, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Turns over here, there's another verse. That's what he ought to be living in. That's what he ought to be seeing at your house all the time. The Word of God. Probably an area that maybe is not receiving the attention that it should in some homes is Johnny's room. I often use Johnny. I hope there's no Johnny's in here. Please don't take offense, Johnny. Sorry, Johnny. Sometimes you go into a Christian home there, the living room, family room, dining room, kitchen, there's the Word of God plastered all over the wall. You walk into the boy's room and it's not the Word of God. Sometimes it's Pro-athletes, there they are. Sometimes it's uh, contemporary Christian musicians, there they are. Right away, as soon as I say it, somebody says, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with pro-athletes. Well, I want to tell you this, there's a whole lot of kids growing up wanting to be pro-athletes who ought to grow up wanting to serve God. And our problem is, we send them into their room, and they spend hours there looking at Michael Jordan. And they come out wanting to grow up and be like him and we need to get our kids to understand that's not really life that's a very few people who end up doing that life is to serve Jesus Christ guard their eyes be careful of what you put in front of them, mom and dad you better be careful and aware of what your children are watching on TV what they're watching on the VCRs. I'm not against TV I have no idea how anybody around here feels I've never been one to say don't have a TV. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite experiences is one of my deacons at Bible Baptist in Westchester came to me one day, said, Pastor Griffith, he said, "Uh, we are going to stone our TV. I said, you are? He said, yes, he's gotten control of us. He said, we're taking it out back and stoning it. I said to him, would you like to stone two TVs instead of one? he said why you want us to stone yours I said well I know you have a beautiful 25 inch color TV and I got two little black and whites and if you'd like to stone those two TVs and let me have your color that's a true story and he would not do it and you know who it was probably he stoned his TV we were stuck with the two black and whites. let me tell you this however because this is serious business and I'm sure you know that every TV program your children watch has an agenda you know that TV is not on for entertainment folks there is a conspiracy oh terrible word but there is there's a an effort to change your view about things change your view on family change your view on morality change your view about society and what it ought to be And virtually every TV program is coming across with a message to change the way you think. And so if you let your child sit in front of that TV, unguided, uncontrolled, I'll tell you, they're getting the wrong message. Moses was saying, for his day and in his way, make sure your children are seeing the right things. And that's our responsibility as well let's go to proverbs 22 proverbs 22 and verse 6 is a well-known verse I think sometimes people don't like it because they see their children go the wrong direction and unfortunately parents don't wanna ever take responsibility but we better get serious about it proverbs 22 and verse 6 says this Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I want you to notice some things about the verse. First of all, will you notice that the term is train, not raise. Now, sometimes we use the term raise children. But the fact is, what we raise in life are crops and animals. You want to raise animals, just give them a lot of food, and sure enough, in time they get big. That's sometimes what we do with kids. We just give them a lot of food, and sure enough, they get big. Our responsibility is more than raise children. The term is not teach. Now, we need to teach our children. We'll talk about it in a moment. But our responsibility is more than teach. Did you ever say this to one of your children? They do something wrong, and you say, you know better than that. You ever use that line? You know better than that. What you are saying is, I have taught you better than that but evidently I haven't trained you better than that, or you wouldn't be doing it. Teaching, training. To train means to set in a direction, to mold character. That's our challenge. Now it's interesting that the term that is here translated train is found in the Bible very few times. And only here is it translated "train." On a couple of occasions, we find it translated dedicate or dedicated. Interesting. We go back to the days when Solomon builds the temple. And after he builds the temple, he dedicates it to God. The little Hebrew term that is the root of this word is a term that means to pack or compress, to narrow down. That's the idea of the term. Now, when Solomon builds the temple and he dedicates it to God, what's he do? He narrows down the use of that building. He says, we've built this building for God. It's not going to be used for other things. This building will be used for God. That's all. He narrowed down the use of the building. I'm sure at some time you've had dedication services for some of your facilities. And this was your idea. You were saying, hey, we're building these buildings for God. not going to be used for the world. We're going to narrow down the use of this building. This is for the glory of God. It's that very same word that is here translated train. You know what it's saying to us? It's saying, Mom and Dad, you have to narrow down. Down the experience of your children to the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Sometimes people say, "Oh, you Christians, you've got this uh, this uh, uh, hothouse type view, you know, and and you got to take care of the kids and don't let them out in the world." You got it exactly right. Children in Christian homes are getting too much of the world. That's the problem. God says you narrow down their experience to the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. From a practical standpoint, what's involved in training? Three things. Number one, control your children. You ever notice the children are out of control? I don't have to tell you that, do I? All you have to do is go out to the the streets, go out to the malls, and there are all these little children running around. They're out of control. They're kicking mom, spitting at mom, hitting mom, dragging mom. They're out of control. I think one of the most sobering and challenging statements in the whole Bible was made by God with regard to some children who were out of control. God spoke to Samuel about Eli, and he said, I have judged his house forever. Because he saw his sons make themselves vile, and he restrained them not. Now, if you read the scripture, you know Eli, he spoke to his children. He said to Phinehas and Hophni, hey, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. But he never stopped them. He never controlled them. And God, in response to it, said, I've judged his house forever. He never controlled his children. Mom and dad, you've got to control them. Sometimes people come and say something like this. Say, brother, I got this boy, 16 years old, and he's out of control. What am I going to do? Can you help me? My daughter, she's 17 years old. She's out of control. Can you help me? What I've always wanted to say to a parent who comes with that plea is this. When did that child get out of control? When did it happen? Do you remember when you first had your baby? You remember that? I mean, he might be big now, but you remember when you first had him? And you went to bring him home from the hospital, and there he was. Remember that? Seven pounds, 12 ounces, or 12 pounds, seven ounces. Well, I don't know what it was, but there he was. Hey, guess what? Perfectly under control. Perfectly under control. Hadn't said anything. Hadn't done anything. Hadn't watched any TV yet. I mean, nothing. This kid is perfectly under control. I'm glad God gives them to us that way, aren't you? God says, Hey, I'm giving you this child. Children are inheritance of the Lord. I'm giving you this child, and he is perfectly under control. Can you imagine getting them at age 16? You know, you go to the hospital and you bring this kid home. (laughs) Well, Mildred, here he is. Only one left, but I got him. No, we don't get him that way. No, God says, listen, I'm giving you this child, and he's under control. Now you keep him that way. You train him in the way he should go. Training is not as tough as some people make it out to be. Now, I know as soon as I say that, somebody's sitting there saying, you don't know my boy. God knew about your boy when he gave Proverbs 22, six. Train up a child. You know, when they're little, you start off like this. No. It's not too tough, is it? No. Now, it isn't this. No, 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 no. It isn't that. It's No eyes are very important, aren't they? Eye to eye, get their eyes, no. Hmm. Then a little later, it's kind of like, no. Right there on the back of the hand. No. Of course, you love kids around that age, right? You ever see that? I heard one about lately who so we just went and kind of went. As we get a little further, there's this little round padded spot designed by God. He told us to apply the rod. And you have to do that, you know that? doesn't matter what this crazy world says. And I know we're under tremendous pressure, but don't you forsake what God says for the pressures that come from this world do it right do it God's way but you gotta do it because mom and dad you must control your children you gotta do it now secondly you have to teach your children you know when kids are little you don't have to do a whole lot of teaching let's suppose for instance I have a little guy and he's about five years old and he comes home one day and he says daddy Billy's Keep you off the hook, Johnny. Billy's daddy is taking him to the movies. And he wants to go. Well, no, if I can go. Oh, that's easy. No. Five years old. No, we don't go to the movies. We're Christians. Oh. That's not real tough, is it? But you know something? When he gets to be 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever it might be, somewhere along the line, I have to teach him why. Christians don't go to the movies? In other words, he cannot live his whole life simply doing what he does because I say so. I need to begin to let him know there are Bible reasons why we live the way we do. I need to take him into the Scriptures and show him that the Bible says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Now, when I build that principle into his life, then I can say, now, you see, we don't go to the movies because we seek to live to the glory of God. And we don't do some other things, and we don't go some other places, and we don't do those things. We have standards that are built on the Bible. I've got to teach them. You've got to teach them. They cannot live life on your convictions. They've got to live life on their convictions. But we have to build conviction into their life through an open Bible. Now, sometimes people say, you know, you Christians, you live like that, boy. You you have these kids, you're controlling them and you're not letting them go anywhere and all this kind of stuff. You're going to drive your kids away. No. You won't drive them away unless you ignore the third area of training, which is love them, love them, love them, love them, love them. You gotta love them to death, mom and dad. You gotta love them. You gotta get down with them and you gotta tell them, I love you. I love you, boy. I love you, girl. I love you with all my heart. You gotta tell them. You gotta hug them. Put your arms around those kids and hug them. Now, kids are funny. Kids go through stages. You know that? Kids go through this kind of stages. They're a certain age. They love to be hugged and snuggled. Then they get to a stage where they don't want to be hugged and snuggled. You know, you go to hug them and they kind of go like this. Then they get to a stage where they want it again. So you you know you hug them and they hug you back. Then they get to another stage. Now here's what you do. You see, when they want to be hugged, you hug them. But when they get to that real strange stage, they don't want to be hugged, you hug them. That's what you do, see? When they want to be hugged, hug them. They don't want to be hugged, hug them. Wanna be hugged, hug them, don't want to be hugged, hug them. You hug them, hug them, hug them, hug them, hug them, and tell them, and tell them, Tom, tell I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Never let your child doubt for a moment that you love them. You need to do some special things. You've got to spend time with them. You've got to talk to them. You've got to spend time with them as individuals. Never let that child doubt for a moment how important he or she is to you. Now, sometimes you've got to say this. You are not going, but I love you. Or, you are going. You know, they get that say, I don't want to go to youth group. You're going. And I love you, but you're going. Love them. Pour your life into that child and love them. I want you to know that if there is a danger in what I'll call our circles Bible believing Christianity it is the danger of dads and moms who want to have the right standards but they don't conquer their children with love and you've got to do that and sometimes I will hear dads say well you know I grew up I didn't have a dad and I don't know how to do this nothing to it nothing to it well you know I had a dad but he was real harsh and he never hugged me doesn't matter Don't you ever let your growing up experience become your excuse for not being a very loving dad. If you don't know how to do it, man, get to somebody and say, Hey, how do you love your kids? These guys will tell you. Love them. Let me give you some practical things tonight, and we'll close. And I would say to you that I base these last challenges on the teaching from the Word of God that tells us to not provoke our children to wrath. We are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we must not provoke them to wrath. And many times we as parents fall into that trap. Some practical things. Number one, never. Never slap or punch your child. Never. Sometimes parents act as if they control their children because they're bigger. Hey, I'm bigger than you, therefore you'll do what I tell you to do or else. I want you to know something, mom and dad. If that's your attitude, then you don't understand your authority at all. Because your authority is spiritual authority. You are in charge of your children not because you are bigger, but because God says so. That's why God has designed that place for a proper application of the rod. But the slapping or the punching that goes on in some homes is not of God. And you'll drive your children away. You'll provoke your child to wrath. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. It is important also that as you deal with your children, you never threaten what you will not do. You ever hear parents threaten what they won't do anyway? But they make these threats? They live on making threats. I think of this. Here's the classic for me. You've been thinking about this vacation for at least six months. And finally the day comes, you're going. And so you pack the car and you get your wife in the car and you get the kids in the car and you take off and this is going to be a big journey, you know, a 2 month or something. You're going all across the country. And you start driving down the road. Now how far do you drive down the road before the kids start causing trouble? Hmm, maybe a mile and a half. You know how it is? So you're driving down the road and the kids are squabbling back there, so you yell, hey, stop that fooling around. Well, you stop for a minute. And you drive along, all of a sudden one of them tickles the other, you know, and pretty soon they're going out of the game. Hey, I said stop fooling around. You get another mile down the road, they're going out of the game. I said stop fooling around. Well, you're so frustrated, you pull the car over to the side of the road, you turn around and you say, if you kids do that one more time, we are turning around, we're going home, there will be no vacation." Now, who believes that? (laughs) Does mom believe it? She's sitting there saying, why does he do this stuff? And the kids are sitting back and saying, (laughs) (laughs) and inside, you know you're going on the vacation. Never threaten what you will not do because kids learn very quickly. And they know, oh, my dad, you know what your child wants to know about you? Hey, if my dad says it, it's going to happen. My dad says it, it's going to happen. So don't make ridiculous threats, but you make the right ones, and you make sure it happens, and soon your child will be very responsive to your authority. And then it's important that you learn to give to your child one warning, not ten. Parents are always giving their kids warnings. Stop doing that or else. Stop doing that or else. Stop doing that or else. One warning. Now again, sometimes our kids don't understand what we want them to do. Eyes get their eyes. Listen, boy, see those toys? Look at me. See those toys? Now, I'm going outside to the mailbox. When I come back in, I want those toys picked up. Do you understand? Look at me. Do you understand? Yes, Dad. Thank you. Out to the mailbox. You come back. What usually happens? I'm going to the mailbox. Get those toys picked up. I'm going upstairs. i got some things to do. When I get back, I want those toys picked up. Come back, I'm going down to the basement, I'm telling you, when I get back, those toys better be picked up. That's ridiculous. Isn't it? One warning. Now, sometimes you need to make it real plain. You say, son, this is your warning. Pick up the toys. And if he doesn't pick up the toys, then he must be disciplined. But if you do it right, it works. It pays off. Do you apologize when you fail your children? Any idea how many times we fail our kids? Say, we're going, we're going, we're going. We don't go. Or if you have a group of kids, you ever paddle the wrong one? (laughs) You ever been there? Say, I know who did it. I know who did it. So you paddle that one, the next day you find out, hey, he didn't do it. What do you do? Say, ah, listen, man, there's lots of times I never did get you. Do that? Hmm. Hey, or do you bring them back? Hmm. Look at them. Say, your daddy was wrong. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I want to tell you, that's one of the most precious times you'll ever have with your child. You both end up in tears. They're crying. It's It's almost embarrassing to them. Forgive my daddy. It's embarrassing for us humiliating, but boy, does it build some nice ties. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. This next area might be more for grandparents than parents, but for whoever, no favorites. No favorites. Grandma, no favorites. You know how it is sometimes? Oh, but he was the first grandchild. He's the first one. We take him on vacation with us because he's the oldest one. What about little Susie? She'll never be old enough. (laughs) You know how that is? Or you know how it is at birthday time? You know, here's little Billy. It's his birthday. Grandmom comes. Wonderful toy. There you are. Then it's Susie's birthday. Grandmom comes. There you are, Susie. And we happen to pick this up for Billy. Don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. He gets his day, she gets her day. If you have a favorite, guess what? The favorite knows it, and everybody else knows it. You're going to hurt them. No favorites. A couple of other things. Don't punish mistakes. You punish mistakes at your house? Aren't you glad God doesn't punish mistakes? I am. I know how it is though thanksgiving dinner there it is all ready to go Before we're all around the table 25 of us gathered together family reunion we bow together for prayer and as soon as dad says amen Billy reaches for the potatoes hits the iced tea and it goes all over the place into the turkey into the stuffing into the potatoes into the peas there it is hey what do you do? It was only a mistake. Hey, mom, you ever spilt the iced tea? <laughs> Frustrating. You ever sp- spill the iced tea? Now, if you said to Billy, Billy, when we finish praying, do not reach for anything. It will be passed to you, and you got them. See, you got them. <laughs> but if you don't give that warning, Don't punish mistakes. Hey, how about the other side of it? Do we compliment them when they do right? Pick up your shoes, put your clothes in the hamper, make your bed, do the dishes. One day you walk in and they did it without being told. What's wrong with you? Do we compliment the good? Hey, good job, terrific, thank you, this is great. You ought to look for that opportunity, Mom. Dad, you ought to look for that opportunity. Look for the times they're trying to do what's right and encourage them, encourage them, encourage them. Next, don't bribe for obedience. Did you ever know why they put the candy rack at the checkout counter? They do that for you. Because they know there are women going all over that store promising their children candy if they'll be good. If you'll just be good, just be good. Don't touch anything, please. Just sit still. If you'll just be good, I'll buy you a candy bar when we get to the checkout counter. You don't bribe your child for obedience. Reward, that's good. If he's good, reward him. But don't bribe for obedience. Don't bend because of other parents. Hey, you're in a large church here, a large Christian school. I can imagine that the kids sometimes come along and say, can I go? No. But he's allowed to go. His parents are letting him go. How come I can't go? Don't ever bend because of other parents. Make sure you have godly standards in your home. Make sure you have standards based on the Word of God. Make sure you're using common sense. And when you've established the rules for your home, never bend for anybody. Bend once, you'll bend forever. Kids always put you to the test, right? What time do I have to be in? 8.30. Can it be 9? Isn't that the way they are? All right, 9. Can it be 9.30? No matter where you draw the line, they'll push. Draw the line at a reasonable place and stick to it. Don't bend. A couple other things and we'll be done. It is very important that somewhere along the line, you and I as parents teach our children the importance of standing alone for what is right. doesn't matter where your kids are. Sunday school, Christian school, Christian college, doesn't matter. Somewhere along the line, I'll guarantee you, the crowd's going to be going the wrong way. Even in Christian settings... The crowd will be going the wrong way, and your boy or your girl, if they do not stand alone, will not stand at all. The best time to teach them and help them with that is when they are still in the confines of your home. They will face challenging times. Help them to take that stand. And I want you to know sometimes the toughest place to stand alone is in the Christian school classroom. You know that, and I know that. I remember a lady came to Westchester. She said, Well, I thought all the kids were good. It's a Christian school. I think she meant it, but that's not the way it is. What makes a Christian school difference, hopefully, is administration, faculty, curriculum, standards, but kids are kids. They're wonderful. But kids are kids. One last thing. I had an assistant pastor say to me one time How about this? If you can't figure out who did it, how about paddling all of them? That's not so good. Now, if you only have one, I mean, you ought to be able to figure out who did it. (laughs) But if you have a group, it is tough. You know you have five of them, so something's done. You don't know where it is, but you gather them all together and you do it, no, you do it, no, you do it, no, you do it, no, you do it, no. All right, all you go to your room. Think about this. I'll call you back in a few minutes. But I want to know who did it. So you bring them back. Okay, now have you thought about it? Yes. You do it, no, you do it, no, you do it, no, you do it, no, you do it, no. You ever been there? I don't know what kind of parent you are, but I know what kind of parent I am. I want to know who did it. Sometimes I'd say. When I asked the Lord to help me find out who did it, and I meant it, I wanna know who did it. But I realize that even if you don't know, you are in fact given an opportunity to teach your children one of the greatest lessons they'll ever learn. As a matter of fact, it might be the key lesson that they have to learn in growing up, and that is that they don't answer to dad anyway. Oh, for a time they do, because God put me in charge. But when all is said and done and they make their way through life, the time will come when dad is going to be out of the way. And the one to whom they answer is the one who already knows. And that's the Lord. Isn't that what we want to teach our children anyway? Isn't that what we want to get into their hearts? Hey, listen, you can get by me. You can get by the teacher at school. You might even be able to get by the police or the government or whatever, but you'll never get by God. You'll stand before him. You're going to answer to God. Well, if I can get that lesson across. So paddle them all? No way. Help them understand that they're already caught by God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you one thing. I think having kids is the most wonderful privilege you can ever have. Next to having grandchildren. (laughs) Which is really terrific. Terrific. But you know, it's serious business. You only get one chance. You only get one chance, and it's not very long. By the time your child is nine years old, you've had your child about half the years you're going to have them. And by the time they reach 18 or so, they are basically on their way out of the house. It goes incredibly fast. You only get one shot. And you and I need to commit ourselves to doing it God's way. Mom and dad, you might need to go home tonight and talk together and come to grips with the fact, hey, we've been messing this thing up and we better turn around quick because we don't want to lose our kids. There are some parents here who probably need to apologize to their children and get a fresh start because this is very serious. It may be that you're here and you say, hey, Brother Griffith, my kids are already grown up. And yes, we've had some problems. My kids have gone the wrong direction. Now, they're responsible. Sometimes I find young people sitting in a meeting who think that somehow they can blame their daddy for them not walking with Christ. Hey, you're responsible young person. You have to walk with Christ. You have to make that decision. No matter what your dad or mom are like, parents fail, you have to walk with Christ. But at the same time, mom and dad, let's understand this. Sometimes we can create a stumbling block for our children. And on their way to Christ, they stumble over our hypocrisy. They stumble over us as we're provoking them to wrath. And it may very well be that there's a mom or dad here who have kids who've already grown up. And you just might need to give them a phone call and say, you know something? I know I made some very serious errors when you were growing up. I want you to forgive me. You never know what God might do. You never know. My prayer for you, and I trust your prayer, would be that not one young person growing up in this church family rejects Christ and goes the way of the world, but that every one of them will come to know Him That every family in this church, by God's grace, can be united in Christ. And we do not understand the ways of God totally, but I do know this. Mom and Dad, you and I have a whole lot to do with what happens in the lives of our children. Let us take it very, very seriously.